Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Let me read for you a familiar passage of scripture from the second chapter of Paul's Philippian letter. Chapter 2 of Philippians. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord into one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him, and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling." For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and a perverse generation, in which you shine like stars in the world. It is by your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a libation over the sacrifice and the offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And in the same way, you also must be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I may be cheered by news of you. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. All of them are seeking their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But Timothy's worth you know, how like a son with a father he has served me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I will also come soon. It's a very interesting theme in Scripture that uh, plays a bigger role in Scripture than I once thought it did. And that is the fact that Jesus is the true man. So oftentimes we speak, or I find myself speaking about the fact that in Jesus Christ we have an opportunity to see what God is like. Because you will remember that Jesus said, if you've seen me, to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he said, if you receive me, you get the Father. And if you miss me, you miss the Father. 
And so Paul says Jesus is the image of God. And so we think of Jesus Christ as the revelation of God. But I think we need to face the fact that the scripture indicates that in Jesus, you see what a man is supposed to be. We live in a world in which it's like somebody going to a, a junkyard and pulling an automobile out and saying that's an automobile. Because, you see, man is fallen and damaged by sin. And if you want to see what an automobile is, you don't go to a junkyard. You go to a place where they've got a new one that's fresh and untouched. And you know what an automobile is. Now, the only place that you can ever see an undamaged human being is in Jesus Christ. And so he is called the true man. Now, the scripture picks that up and calls him either the second Adam or the last Adam. And the picture is that the first man, Adam, was the one who created the problem. Adam sinned and trouble came into the world with its disintegrating destructive forces. And so we're damaged goods. And God looked for a way to cure us. I remember when I first found that passage in Isaiah 59 that most of you have heard me preach on where God looks for a man, and he's astounded that he can't find one. The omniscient one who knows everything is shocked because he can't find a man to fit his needs, and he is searching because he needs one. It, his circumstances are such that he needs an individual, because the problem of the human being, the problem of man, your problem in mind can't be solved in God. Your problem in mind can't be solved in heaven. If a man's problem is going to be solved, it's got to be solved in man. And so God looks for somebody who can be the instrument for the salvation of us all and, and the, the redemption of us, and he couldn't find one. So in Isaiah, it becomes very clear that he says, when I couldn't find one, I had no option. I had to become one. So what you have in Mary's son is what you and I are supposed to be. Now, the social sciences haven't found that out in the psychologists yet, but that's exactly where you will find out what it truly means to be human. If we had time, I wish we could just go through the fifth chapter of Romans, because in the fifth chapter of Romans, Paul very carefully explains the fact that it was by one man that sin came into the world. And he says all of the curse of sin that has come into the world came because of the sin of one man. It was through one man that the trouble came. And then he says, through one man, the answer comes. And that one man through whom the answer comes is Jesus Christ, Mary's son. And he is a true man, a true human being. Now, if you read the, the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, you will find the same theme picked up. And there is a passage where he speaks about Adam being the first man and the problem came in and it was that Jesus Christ is the last Adam and in this last Adam we get uh, the answer to all of our needs. Let me take just a moment and uh, read just a verse or two from 1 Corinthians 15 to point that up. Look at verse 20 of uh, 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died, and since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. 
For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when Christ hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And then down toward the close of that chapter, you get this passage, verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the physical and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. And you get the theme in the New Testament where what Christ did when he died was in order that the image of Christ might be renewed in us, that we might be remade in the image of Christ. It's interesting the doctrine of the atonement that you find in the early centuries of the church. When you get into the Middle Ages, we get more into a juridical philosophy of the atonement where we have sinned, we've broken the law, we're under judgment because we've broken the law, and Christ paid the penalty for our sin, and so we don't have to suffer the penalty of our sin. It's interesting in the second, third, and fourth centuries, that's not the way they looked at the atonement. There's a famous line that's become extremely precious to me that says, that which was not assumed is unhealed. And that's sort of the classical statement of the first thinking about the atonement. Of course, the idea is that Christ assumed all the problems that we have. And everything that he assumed was healed. And so he assumed the totality of our problem. And so we are freed from the problem, no longer bound. We are freed because Christ assumed our problem, took it into himself. It's not so much a penalty to escape, it's to get the problem solved within you. Now, that is, I think, a much more perceptive view of the atonement than much of our contemporary evangelical thinking about it. Now, the interesting thing is, and something that I missed for an incredibly long time, is the fact that that kind of thinking is the background for this passage in Philippians 2 on the mind of Christ. Uh, take your text and stick with me for just a moment, and I think you will find an illumination here that you'll never look at this passage quite the same way again if uh, the same thing happens to you that happened to me. Paul has told the Philippians what he wants them to be like. And you will notice that the key to it is found in the third and fourth verses of this chapter. He says, do nothing out of self-interest or because of appearances, for appearances' sake. But in humility, catch this, regard others as better than yourselves. That's interesting, isn't it? Then he gives this clincher. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interests of others. Now, you have heard me on other occasions say that that's not what you've got in the most of your translations. I have a new RSV, and uh, it translates it the way the Greek says it. But the King James and most of the English translations since have added a word only. Look not only to the interests of yourselves, but look to the interests of others, which opens the door for us for plenty of self-interest. 
but the Greek text actually does not have it there. And the Greek text says, let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And with that, he says, let this mind be in you. And this is the mind which was in Christ Jesus, because Christ did not look to his own interests, but he looked to our interests, and that's the mind that was in Christ. And then he goes on to give us this, what the scholars say is an early hymn in the Christian church, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited or seized, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Now you will notice that what we are told that Christ did is this, that when he was in the form of God, when he was equal to God, he did not count that as something to be grasped, something to be held on to, but was perfectly willing to give up that position of equality, give it up, not to lose it permanently, but to give it up while he was here in our midst. And so he emptied himself of the perquisites of deity that were his, and he took on himself the form of a slave or a servant being born in human likeness like you and like me being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, the indications are that what Paul had in mind here was Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And that what you have here is the reversal of what you had in the Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden of Eden, God said, everything's here. It's all made for you. There's just one thing I want you to stay away from, because if you take it, you will know what evil is, and I don't want you to know what evil is. I don't want you to be hurt. And so uh, the serpent comes along and says, hey, is it all yours? And they said, yep, everything's here. It's ours except for one thing. And you remember how the devil said... Now, God is misleading you because if you eat that, you will find that in the day you eat it, you will know the difference between good and evil and you'll be like God. Now, the interesting thing is that's the first great lie. Because you see, what he is saying is that God is holding something back from you that's good. And you, if you're smart, it'll benefit you if you eat it. So in self-interest, you ought to take care of your own self and your own interest and eat that fruit. And so Adam and Eve took care of their own interests, put themselves first, their own interests first, and they ate the fruit. Now Jesus, the eternal Son of God, comes along. And he has the opportunity to be exactly like God because that's who he is. And he puts it on the shelf for 33 years. And he puts it on the shelf so that you and I can be redeemed so that the damage that came to us through sin can be undone. So they grasp for that fruit. He did not grasp for equality with God and he emptied himself and he reversed the process of the Garden of Eden and did it in order that we might be saved. Now that's a, a magnificent picture for me now of what the gospel is all about and what the cross is all about to set us free from the damage that came through sin in the beginning. Now what is the damage? 
The damage is that before sinning, we were oriented outward toward God. And our basic orientation is outside of ourselves toward others. And that's what agape love is. And that is what you have in God, where the Father is oriented toward the Son and the Spirit. The Son is oriented toward the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit is oriented toward the Father and the Son. It is that other orientation. And you'll notice what Paul said. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In other words, he's saying, I want you to be like God. And the devil comes along and says, take care of yourself and you'll be like him. Now, you know, it's interesting that our view of God normally is the exact opposite of what it really is. I remember William Temple, you've heard me say this, said, if your concept of God is wrong, the more religion you get, the more dangerous you'll be to yourself and to everybody else. And the hardest problem that we have is getting to the place where our concept of God is right and what we think he is, is what he actually is. But do you know how most of us feel about living for others and living for somebody beside ourselves? We say that's what he wants us to do, and because he's God, we ought to do it. But what the biblical reason is, yes, we ought to live for somebody beyond ourselves, live for that which is outside of ourselves, and God wants us to live that way because that's the way he lives, and that's what the cross proves, and that's what the cross evidences to us, that God is living for us and cares more about us than he does himself, and that's the story. Now, that's a different view of the atonement and what Christ was doing than I have had through most of my life. It's interesting that the scriptures teach that he really became a normal human being like you and me. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I grew up in the days when modernism was rampant, and... Uh, I remember that I never expected to meet an intelligent person when I was 16 who believed in the deity of Christ because we were taught that he was a good man. And in ancient days, they believed in the deity of Christ, but now we were beyond that and more progressive and so forth. And I got converted. Christ became a part of my life, and I was ready to shed my blood for his deity. <laughs> so when anybody raised a question about his deity, I was out to fight. <laughs> and, you know, one of the consequences of that was that I was more enamored with his deity than I was with his humanity. But do you know if you let a shadow go across his humanity, you've let a shadow grow across what he came to do for us. Because if you will read Hebrews, and we don't have time to go into all the texts, but just look at the second chapter of Hebrews, and then look at the fourth chapter, and you'll find that we're told that he became one of us, and that he was tempted in all points like as we are. Now, you know, I had, I'd read that, but I had trouble really believing it because I knew he was the eternal son of God and he could handle the devil and everybody else. And I knew I had weaknesses. <laughs> and living right was a battle for me. And so uh, I thought, well, he died for me and I appreciate that, but really... He never has been fought with the battles that I have. Have you ever been a teenager and tried to keep your inner soul clean? Keep your inner mind and spirit uncontaminated? Have you ever tried that as a teenager? I thought, surely he didn't have any of these battles. But you know where I've come in connection with this because of what he's taught here and I think is very clear in Scripture? 
I think what he emptied himself was the rights to all of the surplus that went with him being the divine son of God. And when he became one of us, he, he emptied himself and put that on a shelf. And it decided, opted, chose, voluntarily said, I will not use any of my divine powers for my self-interest while I am down here being one of them. Now, the New Testament says that he's the one who's going to judge us. And I like to think that the one who will judge me has been where I've been and suffered what I've suffered. And the only way you can get him knowing what we've suffered, judging us, saying, I've been where you've been, and you didn't have to sin, is for him to empty himself of the perquisites that went along with his deity. Now, uh, I've come to the place, let me pin it down in just this word, I do not think that Jesus availed himself. I think he had access to them, but I don't think he availed himself of any means of grace that's not available to me. Because if he availed himself of any means of grace that's not available to me, he's never been where I am. And he did it without forfeiting his deity. He is the eternal son of God, and he continued his work as the eternal son of God, but never once used that for himself. Now, the thing that opened that up to me is a prepositional phrase or a set of prepositional phrases in the Gospel of John. And you know I have the vaguest interest in prepositional phrases. I'm aware of that. <laughs> I used to have to teach them grammar, and so I see some of these things because, you know, ancient patterns that go. And uh, in the Greek, they are much more obvious than they are in English. The English smooths things over. But in the Greek, they just sort of jump out at you. And you know what they are? There are three expressions. And the is from myself and the is from himself. And the is used when he's speaking of himself in the third person, when he speaks of himself as the son of man. But when he's talking first person, he says, from myself. And when he's talking third person, he says, from himself. And then there's one occasion where he says, out of myself. Now, there are 14 occurrences of those phrases in connection with Jesus and his activities. But let me tell you where they occur. It's when, uh, you remember, he healed a man on the Sabbath day and told him to take up his bed and walk. And the Jerusalem authorities were, priestly authorities were very unhappy about that because, you see, it was against the law to carry a burden on the Sabbath day. I've told most of you about a Jewish friend of mine who smokes a pack of cigarettes every day except Saturday. And on Saturday he didn't smoke. And I asked him why he didn't smoke on Saturday, because it was a sin? He said, no, because you're not supposed to carry a burden on the Sabbath, and I haven't found a way to smoke without carrying one. And so you will notice that uh, on the day that he campaigns on Saturday or has to work, he has somebody else switch the lights for him. Now, uh, 
They believed that it was wrong to carry a burden on the Sabbath. And he hit them at the place. I missed it for many, many decades. But he said, my father works hitherto, and I work. And you know what he was getting at? It rains on the Sabbath. And who makes it rain? The father. (laughs) Women give birth to babies on the Sabbath. (laughs) And where do they come from? God works all that out. The father. (laughs) So on the Sabbath, the father works. And so Jesus says, my father works on the Sabbath, and I do too. (laughs) Because I've healed a man on the Sabbath. And uh, that said, you're making yourself equal to God. So it's in that context when they're talking about his relationship to his father. He says, I just healed a man. But he said, I can do nothing from myself. Now that sets the stage for the Gospel of John. The 14 occurrences of those phrases. I can do nothing from myself. They pin him about his teaching. And he says, oh, it's not my words. (laughs) My words don't come from myself. I only speak what I hear my father say. His uh, works are not his own. His word is not his own. His life is not his own. He draws his life from his father. Now, it's interesting, if you follow them through in the 14 cases, there's only one place where he does anything from himself for himself. I wish I knew how to say this as dramatically as I feel it and as it really is. You know what the one occasion where he does says he does something from himself, so he's saying, I do it for myself? It's when he's talking about the good shepherd. You know, shepherd keeps sheep so they can eat or wear them or sell them so somebody else can eat or wear them. But he says, the good shepherd keeps sheep so they can eat and wear him. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now he says, I have authority. The Father has given all authority to me. He's got plenty of power. (laughs) But he said, I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up. No man takes it from me. I lay my life down from myself. Now that is the only place I can find in the Gospels where Jesus ever does anything for himself. He lays down his life for you and me. Now, it's interesting, that's the way a human being is supposed to live. And you know why a human being is supposed to live that way? Because that's the way God lives. And so when Satan said to Adam and Eve, you take care of yourself, he was saying, you just be the opposite of what God is. But you know, we've preached a God who's sitting up there so sovereign, and, you know, so powerful and so fearful and all. We say, brother, you better think about other people because if you don't, you're going to be in trouble. No, that, that's not the context at all. The context is God is one where each person cares more about the other than he does himself, and he wants us to enter into that fellowship. And so Paul says, let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let this same mind be in you, 
which was in Christ Jesus. There are two of those 14 instances that are not referring to Christ. But one of them is in the 16th chapter when he says the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, doesn't speak from him, of himself or from himself. And he doesn't work from himself. So now you've got the perfect picture of Jesus who doesn't live for himself. And now you've got the Spirit who doesn't work for himself. But the Spirit works to glorify the Father and the Son and to redeem you and me. And so the Spirit is this other-oriented Spirit, and that's the way he lives. Now the other place that is not referring to Jesus is in 15.4, where he says about a branch. A branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. So there is no life in the branch. The life is in the vine, and the branch draws its life from the vine, and the branch has no fruit in itself. The branch draws the resources from the vine that enable the branch to be fruitful. And that's the picture of what we are supposed to be, where we draw our life out of God, and then it is shared with others. Now, I wish I knew how to say that as well as it deserves to be said, because it is a different concept of God, and it is a different concept of salvation, and that's what God is like, and that is what salvation is to be, to make me like him. Now, it's interesting, there are illustrations in the Gospels that illustrate how he refused to use this divine power for himself. At the temptation, you read it in, in Matthew, you read it in Luke, he was, you remember, he went into the wilderness, and after 40 days fast, when he's desperately hungry, because he's just like you and me. If you were to fast 40 days, what you would experience would be what he experienced. So he's hungry. The devil comes to him and says, one of these days, you're going to take five loaves and two fish and feed 5,000 people. You have the power. Take those rocks there and turn them into bread. You can do that. And then you can satisfy your own thing. He says, that's not the way this act goes. So he refuses to use his divine power for himself. Now, the second thing is, in the temptation, when the devil takes him up on the pinnacle of the temple and says, now, if you'll just cast yourself off, the angels will take care of you. And he says, no question about that. But we ain't going to do that. <laughs> because I will never use, while I'm here, being one of them, resources that are not available to them. And so, he will not cast himself from the temple. But now the one that's gotten the closest to me is this. It's the cross. You remember when he was arrested, Peter pulls out his sword and clips Malchus's ear, and Jesus says, Peter, you don't need to do that. If I wanted to, I could ask my father and he'd send 12,000 angels down here. I have a right to do that. But I'm not going to do that. That's not the way we play it. I'm playing the role of one of you, and there are no resources available to me that are not available to you. Now, before I go to the cross, let me say, yet without any resources that are not available to you and me, look at the life he lived. Now, how did he do it? If you look at the Gospels, he's very clear that the key to his life is not in his, his human life, is not in his deity. The key to his human life is in the Holy Spirit 
that is operative within him. You will remember that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's the way his human life began. And the Holy Spirit, through that conception, gave him to us. I think there is something comparable to that in the new birth. Because what does it mean is Jesus talked to Nicodemus about being born again. It's born of the Spirit. And just as God, through the Spirit, gave life to a man who is the Christ, God can put spiritual life into me. And there's a, something comparable there, an analogy. You'll remember the second thing had to do with his ministry, and it was the baptism. The Spirit came upon him, and he had no ministry until the Spirit came upon him. And when the Spirit came upon him, then he went forth in the power of the Spirit. And when he went forth in the power of the Spirit, the Spirit led him into the wilderness. And the Spirit led him into the temptation. And so I think it is fair to say that the resources that he had in the temptation and the controversy with the devil came to him through the Holy Spirit. You'll remember that the Jewish leaders said, Yes, he has remarkable power and he does these miracle things, but but he does that because he has a demonic power within him. And when they accused him of having a demonic power, he said, you want to understand my miracles? He said, uh, if I by the finger of God cast out devils in one of the gospels and the other, and he says, if I by the spirit of God cast out devils, then the kingdom has come to you. So very clearly his miracle work was through the power of the spirit his cleansing of the lepers and uh, delivering the demoniacs and so forth. But the one that is most moving to me, a verse I read over, skipped over for 70 years, or for 60-some, it's in Hebrews 9, where he's talking about the offerings in the Old Testament, the offerings in the temple of blood, the offerings of bulls and of goats and of lambs, and he talks about how if the blood of bulls and goats were used there, how much more will the blood of Christ in Hebrews 9.14, which says, Who through the eternal spirit offered himself a blameless or an acceptable sacrifice to God? Now, I know I now, when I think about the cross, the text says if I take it seriously, through who Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself a blameless sacrifice to God on Calvary's cross. Now let me tell you the way that comes to me. They've stretched him out on the cross on the ground and they put one spike through one of his hands. And if he's like you and like me, you know that the pain, the anguish that he was in was about as close to unbearable as you could get. So now while he is in the deepest and most intense pain, suffering, he looks up into the face of a Roman soldier who's getting ready to put the spike in the other hand. And the interesting thing is, he is the eternal Son of God who sustains all things by the word of his power. Now, if he, the one on that cross, is the one who sustains all things by the word of his power, 
Where does that Roman soldier get the energy to pick up the mallet, put the spike in place, and swing it and drive it in? It's Jesus himself lying on that cross who gives him the power to drive it through the other hand. And the devil says, why don't you get some help? And he says, no, I will not take advantage of any resource that one of them wouldn't have. And so he looks into the face of the soldier, gives him the energy, and says, drive her in. Now, my view of God has shifted a bit, and my understanding of the cross has shifted a bit. It had to be in a man that we were redeemed, a human being that we were redeemed. And so he took our place as one of us, and the redemption occurred. And then he assumes his place at the right hand of the Father, and he enjoys all of the divine perquisites now. But it's interesting, he enjoys them at the same time that he hasn't given up his humanity, and he's still one of us. He's the one who says he wants us to live like he lived. And I think that makes much more poignant that conversation of Jesus with his eleven on Thursday night before the cross. When he says, I'm going to leave you, but I want to give you the best gift that I could give you. He's good enough that it's better for me to go than for me to stay, because he can do for you even more than I can do for you as the Christ, now linked with the body. And so I want to give you the secret of my life while living here. I want to give you to you the comforter. I want to give to you the same spirit that lived and moved within me. And I want you to have the fullness of that spirit within you. Now, the interesting thing is, that it is possible for a human being to live like Jesus. Many of you have read uh, Claire Stewart's biography of Latimer. You remember the night before the cross, Jesus said, Father, if it's possible to take it from me. Latimer faltered a little, but the day came, and when they pinned him to that part there in Oxford, with uh, the other bishop at his back, you'll remember he said, be of good cheer, Brother Ridley. <laughs> we will light a candle today that will brighten all England. <laughs> and you'll remember it wasn't too many days after that when Cranmer was brought to the same spot and he had signed what has often been thought of as a retraction of his faith and so when they started the fire, he put the hand that did the signing in the fire and had that hand burned first. Now, how do you do that? It's done in the power of the Spirit. Now, what is the supreme power of the Spirit? You know, I'm convinced that 20th century evangelicalism has missed it. Because the supreme power of the Spirit is the power to sacrifice yourself. Yes. 
And we've spoken about the power of the Spirit in terms of the kind of miracle deliverance that Jesus declined to use for himself. But I suspect there's more of the power of the Spirit in a day with Mother Teresa than with most of us that preach on the Spirit. And in that sacrifice of oneself. What is it the Spirit wants to do within me? The supreme thing that he wants to do is through the blood of Christ and through the atonement of Christ reverse what happened in Adam and Eve where man got oriented toward himself. And he wants to turn me inside out to where my life can be lived in the kind of agape love that permeated Christ where he lived his life for someone beyond himself. And he wants me to come to the place where my life is not stained by self-interest. Now, there's no way you can keep from being interested in yourself because you're a self. But there is a grace that can set a person free where he is not tyrannized by it, nor is he polluted by it. Now, that's what I love today about deeper than the stain has gone. What is the stain? It's this. The illustration that's most poignant to me in Scripture now is in the life of Moses. You will remember that uh, he was an incredible man as far as I'm concerned. I think he, next to Christ, apart from Christ, he's the greatest man that ever lived. You will remember that uh, toward the end of his life, he'd put up with a whale of a lot with those Hebrews in the wilderness. And oftentimes he had been the one who'd save their skins because he said, God, before you wipe them out, you've got to wipe me out, and God wouldn't do it. But then toward the end, you remember there was no water. And so they were complaining, grumbling. And as they grumbled, he was irritated by their grumbling. And God said to him, we've been through this before, but we want to do it a little differently. This time, instead of striking the rock, you stand in front of the rock, raise your rod and speak to it. When you speak to it, the water will pour out. And you'll remember Moses stood in front of the rock and he looked around at uh, those Hebrews and he said, do we have to bring water out of this rock for you? And then he struck the rock and the water gushed. And then the people drank, and God said to Moses, Moses, that'll keep you out of the promised land. Because it isn't we, it's I who bring water out of the rock. I question whether there's any case in human history where a two-letter pronoun costs as much. But what is it? But that usually is simply the mixture we move from I to we when grace wants us to go from we to him. See Christ and Christ alone. Because you see, that's what you had in Jesus' life. He lived his life totally in orientation toward his Father and toward the world he had come to redeem. And he knew there was no power in him as a human being to redeem but through him as a human being, if he let God have total control, total control, 
he could be the instrument through which the world could be redeemed. And if we can get rid of the self in the sense of having it crucified and come to the end of the we and us to where it is he who reigns supreme, Christ preeminent. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, where he is in total control. Then uh, there will be that freedom within us, and he can do what he wants to do with us. You know, I was reading this morning, and I hadn't thought about this. If I had, I've forgotten it. You remember in Matthew 25 when uh, he's dividing the sheep from the goats and the sheep on the right and the goats on the left and he says to the sheep, enter into my uh, father's kingdom, enter into the blessing. And they say, why do we merit this? He says, because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was needy, you met my needs. Then they said, when did we see you? Well, he said, when you did it for somebody else, you did it for me. Now, see if I can say this right. You know, in our age, we've used that for social work. But you know what the first thing is? He says, Inasmuch as you did it unto me, because you've got to put me first. And if I'm not in your good works, they'll be corrupting. But if you get me central, then you'll find that you want to take care of the needy. You want to take care of the hungry. You want to take care of the lost. And when you do take care of them, your ministry to them won't be corrupt by what they call missionary imperialism. It won't be corrupted by our self-interest that puts us in the favored position of being so good to these. So at the center of our lives ought to be that, inasmuch as ye have done it unto me. That is what sanctifies everything else. You know, the thought of him being able to cleanse me from that self-reference has become the, the most beautiful thing in, that I can conceive <laughs> and the most attractive thing that I can think of. Can you tell me anything that would be more glorious than not to be contaminated by self-interest? And you're free, free to live for something beyond yourself and others beyond yourself, and you're free to live totally for God. I cannot conceive of anything more attractive, winsome, beautiful than that. And the beautiful thing is, that's why he became one of us. The beauty of it is, it's remarkably like him. And the only way you can be that way is let him possess you and fill you with the Spirit and when you do, you'll be what a human being supposed to be to get you and me to where we're what God intended us to be. But I hope at least you've gotten a glimmer of it. And there's something in your spirit that says, Lord, as you face Jesus Christ, as you face him, you say, Lord, I want to be wholly yours. I want to be all yours.
I want you to be the control in my life. I want you to be the dominant one in my life. I want my life to be yours. And I want you to be free to live your life through me. I think if you pray that way and if you do that in your personal relationship with him, I want to say they'll begin to grow in you a belief. Yes, he can do it. And you'll begin to find a release, a cleansing, a deliverance, a freedom, and a joy. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we know if we knew how to say it, we would all be on our faces in adoration and in praise. We thank you for the power of the gospel, that it can not only save us from hell and save us from sins, but it can save us from our self-orientation, the flesh, that where we build our lives in reference to ourselves. So set us free from that self-reference. Set us free until all that we are and all that we do comes out of our relationship to you, and we are free in your grace and love. And we'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Bless you.